This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again, Doug Collum. Welcome back, everyone. This is SiriusXM's Bay Area Ventures, live from the campus of Wharton San Francisco. I'm Doug Collum. For people just joining us for the second half of our program, uh, our program is about startups and venture capital and entrepreneurship. But notwithstanding, we're actually going to deviate from that with our next guest. And uh, so stay with us, because I think this is going to be interesting. If you've got a question, we are a talk show. We, we, and you're welcome to join the conversation. You can reach us at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. So in the studio now with us is Owen Thomas, who is the business editor of the San Francisco Chronicle. So this will be a very interesting discussion. Um, Owen supervises the business and technology um, covered by the San Francisco Chronicle. And while he's going to be our guest for this next hour, he's actually agreed to be a regular contributor to the program going forward in 2019. We're at the beginning of the program. We, we start at 4 p.m. Pacific time on Mondays. For the first, I would say, 10 minutes or so, Owen will be um, joining us and talking about uh, topics that are relevant to the San Francisco business community. So it might be something to do with trends or dynamics in the industry. It might be something to do with one of the many iconic tech companies here in the city. Uh, it could be anything that's relevant and impactful and kind of top of mind for people who work in the business community around here. Um, so we're looking forward to this. This is a bit of an exp- experiment. We're, we're grateful to have Owen on as a, as a guest for this, this first hour. And then I think starting on January 7th is when Owen will begin dialing in as a regular contributor to the program. So, Owen, welcome. Great to have you on board. Thanks for having me here. So um, <clears throat> this falls out outside my comfort zone because I'm, I'm used to asking questions of VCs and founders and CEOs. You know, journalists are different, different kind of animals. So maybe you can start. What is your background? How did... How does one become a journalist and ultimately uh, the business editor of kind of the main newspaper that covers uh, business in the San Francisco Bay Area? I think it's not that far afield, actually, because I have a non-traditional path to to journalism and definitely to newspapers. I mean, in, in newspapers, the traditional way is that you kind of rise up, you work at a, you know, you work in a small town and then you get a slightly better job in a slightly bigger city and then you move on up to you know in, bu- on up. in business school they call that career management yeah. exactly yeah. that i mean that's a traditional path but um for me i came out to san francisco i knew uh i knew uh from probably my junior year in college that i wanted to go to san francisco there was just something going on. Uh, actually, there's a funny story when I was a kid. So where are you from? I'm from Northern Virginia, okay. outside Washington, D.C. Okay. So we had a game of Monopoly, you know, my introduction to the world of business. <laughs> and for some reason, I, I was a little kid fascinated with maps. And I think if you drew a line due west from D.C., you end up in San Francisco, and then it's the Pacific Ocean. So it's this little peninsula at the end of the earth, right? But when I was, I don't know, seven or eight, I scratched out that part of the Monopoly board that says, go directly to jail. (laughs) And I wrote in, go directly to San Francisco. Um, And that's pretty much what I did after college. So tell me about some of the, I mean, some of the publications or, 
you know, media media that you, you worked with before joining up with the San Francisco Chronicle? Well, absolutely. It's a it's a long list, but I'll yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll take you through yeah. it. Um, I got an internship at Mother Jones Magazine, which okay. has always been based out here. And um, the exciting thing about Mother Jones for me was that they had a website. And in 1995, I think maybe three national magazines had websites to even start with. So if you wanted to work on the web, you didn't have that many choices, right? There was, you know, there was Wired. Uh, I think Utney Reader was another one and Mother Jones. So that was it. So um, I had already learned a little HTML. I learned more. I learned how to log on to a Unix server and edit files. I learned how to break the website, which I promptly did in my first month or so, but my boss was very forgiving. So digital media was just coming into into relevance at that point. Absolutely. And I had, uh, you know, wow. I had these rare skills of knowing HTML, knowing Unix, really only knowing enough to be dangerous. Yeah. Um, I got myself out of being a webmaster as, as fast as I could because, you know, I could, I could tell it was getting more and more technical. Um, but what I was good at is figuring out how do you get, you know, how do you get the article online? How do you post an article on the website? What's the bare minimum of technology that you need to do that much? And that's really all you needed. You know, there were, there were no content management systems. You had to invent it all yourself, the, the way a website was organized, navigation, um, and you hand-coded it all. It's hard to imagine now, given the sophisticated tools we have to to create websites. Yeah, so dial forward. What happened next? Then I got a real job, yeah. so to speak, at a uh, publisher of uh, trade magazines called IDG. They're the owner of Macworld, of PC World. Where are they based? Here uh, in the Bay Area? They're actually based in uh, outside the Boston area, but okay. they've long had a um, a big San Francisco presence. A lot of their publications, Macworld, for example, was based here. And from there, I got a job at uh, a technology and business magazine called Red Herring. Oh, now, sure. I, think, I remember that. Yeah. So I think some of your readers who, you know, who followed the tech sector in the 90s, especially if they were investing in IPOs. Boy, that, uh, was, the, that was kind of the gospel for technology. At the oh, time. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and I was hired specifically to work on redherring.com, which before then, you know, the website really wasn't updated um, until there was a new issue of the magazine out. So it was updated like once a month. Um, I started taking them to a daily publication cycle. We hired more reporters. Um, I actually became a reporter myself. The The funny story there is that I was uh, I was really hired to do web production because I knew HTML and, you know, all the technical skills. But I had all these friends who were, had taken jobs at startups. And so I would hear that Excite.com had just laid off its entire editorial team. And I went to my boss and said, hey, you know, I think this is a story. We should probably do something about it. They're venture-backed. Kleiner put money into them. And she said, well, it sounds like you know the story. Why don't you write it? And uh, cool. that happened more yeah. and more. And before I knew it, I was, I was uh, a reporter. And before I knew it, I wasn't uh, worrying about HTML anymore. What happened after Red Herring? So they were acquired, weren't they? Red Herring, actually, they, they were... Um, Interesting story, and that actually will fast forward through my career. So Time Inc. Uh, noticed that all of these technology uh, and business magazines that were popping up, and they were thinking, well, what do we do with Fortune? Um, you know, because Fortune is, you know, Fortune is kind of the Fortune 500, mainstream yeah. business. Uh, do we need to have a title here to kind of capture some of the interest and the ad dollars? So they tried to buy Red Herring, I am, I'm told on good authority. Red Herring said no, they wanted you know, $75 million or some uh, incredible seeming sum. 
And so Time Inc. Um, went out to uh, start a magazine of its own. Um, it's a classic buyer bell dilemma, right? Yeah. So at that point, I actually was working for Time. They had moved me out to New York to work on Time Magazine. But knowing that I had worked at Red Herring, they invited me to be part of this new magazine, uh, which eventually became Business 2.0. And so I, uh, I was there. I actually rose to chief of reporters and online editor. Um, I basically see. I basically stumbled into first being a reporter, then I stumbled into being an editor. Um, Boy, that's that's. I mean, that's those are nice stumbles to have. Yeah, um, but you know, I think part of it is just wanting. You know, when I was a reporter, you know, I became a reporter because I got these tips about stories. I wanted them to be told right. Um, I became an editor because I wanted yeah. reporters to be treated right. Yeah, um, you know, I I I really think you know that's that's important. How you cultivate your reporters is ultimately the only. Sounds like only running, thing that makes sounds you successful. Sounds a lot like running the company. I mean, we were talking last hour about the culture and, and the way of uh, employees relate to the CEO. I mean, this is kind of similar. So, in just rapid fashion, so after Red Herring, then you kind of jumped a few to more Time times. Inc. Um, and then uh, then I got recruited to uh, to take over Valleywag, which was Gawker Media's Silicon Valley gossip. Yeah, uh, gossip rag, um, and. Um, that was a that was an incredibly fun two year run. It felt like a decade. Um, everything moved very fast. But what the, what, what time frame was that? Approximately that was two thousand seven to two thousand nine. Okay. So Doug, Boy, the the interesting thing about that time was also that was when the world was on its head. Well, it was you know it was the era when Facebook was taking off. Yeah. Um, but it was a raw startup. Like Sheryl Sandberg was hired uh, when I was there. Yeah. So going through the whole culture clash of bringing someone. In who's corporate, who worked at the White House, who worked at Google, um, you know, that's it, it was a very, you know, it was a very fascinating world to be writing about. And I find that a lot of the knowledge I got from, you know, from the inside there, it's playing out today. I mean, the, you know, the concerns about Sheryl Sandberg in 2018 yeah. are the concerns about Sheryl Sandberg in 2008. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. So um, from there, um, I, you know, I, I worked at, uh, a few different uh, publications, large and small. I uh, worked at NBC, uh, worked at some online publications, um, and that online world was where I was, uh, where I was sitting when uh, the Chronicle opportunity came along. Yeah, talk about that. How did how how did you jump on board with the Chronicle? And they're both hard copy and digital, right? Correct. And um, they're you know the Chronicle was interesting to me one because they've got this uh great leader audrey cooper is one of the few women uh running a major metro newspaper um and she just thinks about things very differently so it was not a concern to her or or if it was a concern to her it wasn't it wasn't a a, a show-stopping one that i had not worked at a newspaper the the way i think about it is um you know i worked online so i knew rapid knew that you yeah. know knew the world of like rapid news production and I worked at magazines, so I knew the world of kind of slowing down, um, editing, taking care, and, you know, uh, fact-checking. You know, at the magazine, we had like 17 separate steps that had to happen before we published an article, which was probably a bit excessive. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a real process. Yeah, it's a real process. It's, it's about quality. Uh, at a newspaper, you're kind of doing both simultaneously. You're putting together a Sunday report that's much like a magazine. You are competing with online news sources on speed. Um, 
but I, I think I would say constant time pressures. Oh, absolutely. But I think the thing is, you know, if you are these days, if you are a magazine, you're challenged to act like a wire service and a TV station. If you're a TV station, you're challenged to act like a newspaper. Um, you know, if you are a newspaper, you're challenged to, you know, do video, do long form, do rapid fire, do rapid fire news. Like the, the internet has erased these artificial distinctions between forms of media. So now everyone has to do everything. You have to reach the reader in all the different ways that they want to consume your, you know, your journalism. So talk about your job as the business editor of the San Francisco Chronicle. Do you have a staff that reports to you? Yes, we've got a staff of, uh, it's uh, about uh, nine reporters and, um, you know, three, three editors, so a dozen of us. And uh, we are responsible for the print edition, but we try to focus on the news. And it sounds, you know, it sounds like, oh, you've got this print thing that's distracting. Uh, how do you focus on the web? The reality is the stories tell you where they want to be. And a good story is a good story. You want to get it out. Yeah. Um, as, you know, in as many ways as you can. So it's not that hard. Are you, know. you so, so um, are you writing? Are you acting as a reporter? On, t on occasion where you're actually taking this story and writing it yourself? You know, Doug, I, I did this really foolish thing. My boss asked me to um, take over one of our newsletters, which was, you know, the, it's it, it started out as a link newsletter. Like, here are links to all our latest stories. Here you go. And that was it. And what, what we found is that people are much more likely to read something that is original, interesting reporting. Um, maybe you've got some links in there, but, you know, have the links be chosen by someone who's, you know, got some personality in some editorial sense. Yeah. And, you know, I said, uh, you know, I said, well, oh, my reporters are pretty busy. Why don't, you know, and I, I actually, so you volunteered, I volunteered myself, Doug. <laughs> it was, it was a, it was a foolish thing to do. Um, but, uh, it's been, it's actually been a lot of fun. It's, you know, it's once a week, so I'm not, um, killing myself on deadline every yeah. day the way my reporters are. Um, but, um, you know, for example, uh, just last week, I broke the news that Jack Dorsey's Charitable Foundation has no visible presence. And I dug into why that is and what happened to the millions of dollars he said he was going to give away. Um, that actually turned into a print story in uh, this morning's paper. I, actually, I saw it. Yeah. Oh, hey, thank so, you. so this is a nice segue. I mean, for people who are just joining us. Our guest this hour is Owen Thomas, who is the business editor of the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, and this is a little bit of a departure from the guests we usually interview in the program. But this is great because it gives us a chance to create something going forward called the Bay Area Beat. Owen's going to be dialing in for many of our programs beginning on January 7th to talk about topics that are relevant. Before we, we skip into some of the substantive topics that we have on the program today, um, how do people find you? I mean, if they go, if they subscribe to either the online edition or the hard copy edition of the Chronicle, will they see your name as either as a as a as a byline for an article? Absolutely. Uh, you can go to sfchronicle.com right. and subscribe. Uh, I believe you can go to sfchronicle.com/newsletters/tech-chronicle. To, and, that, and that's you. That is to subscribe directly to my email newsletter. Can you repeat that just for people? Absolutely. Listening? It's sfchronicle.com slash newsletters slash tech hyphen chronicle. 
So I write the Tech Chronicle newsletter. comes out every Wednesday. That's good to know. Okay, that's great. So at this point, I wanted to shift into uh, some of the more substantive topics. And I think we had we had suggested maybe we can start. I mean, they're more or less related. The first topic, Owen would be talking about unicorns, which are these billion-dollar-plus valued tech companies here in the Bay Area, and kind of the maneuverings they're going through to find an exit, either through by selling stock, their stock in an IPO, or by selling the company to a buyer. And in either event, um, you know, shareholders are able to monetize their equity stakes in the company through these two avenues. So going from there, shifting into um, kind of a natural or logical subtopic, which is the more generally speaking, hypergrowth in the San Francisco Bay Area. I mean, it's a high-class problem, effectively. Mm -hmm. You've got so many companies that are growing so fast and hiring so many employees and consuming so many resources and doing such major things that are impacting not just the United States, but the world. That's, it, it, you know, it's white hot around here in San Francisco to talk about that. And then finally, the last topic we'll get to before the program ends is to talk about homelessness in San Francisco, which has become a significant, which continues to be and is increasingly a a problem here in the city. So why don't we start with unicorns? Um, And again, I don't have too much structure to this, but I mean, from where you sit, you know, it's hard to cover any relevant trends or dynamics going on in the city and county of San Francisco or the Bay Area, for that matter, without running into all these unicorns that are running around here. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's it's important, if I can spend a second on this first, yeah. it's important to, to note that the unicorn herd is very centered in the Bay Area. There are unicorns in China, of course. There are even unicorns in India and Europe. Um, but... There are, you know, first, if you're, you know, your listeners have probably heard the term unicorn, but for anyone for whom it's unfamiliar, it means a private company valued at more than a billion dollars. And when I started reporting about startups in the 90s, a a private valuation of a billion dollars was just unheard of. It was unheard of. Yeah. I I agree. Like, you know, that would be a literal unicorn um, because you would take the company public. You know, like if you look at the valuations that, you know, pets.com say, raised at. Uh, I think they raised maybe $80 million in the IPO. You know, it was it was not a big offering by today's standards at all. Um, and you could take a company public at, you know, at a much smaller valuation than you would today. But now we're looking at Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, um, you know, all teeing up to go public in, you know, within the next year. And those are all San Francisco companies. Um, and I think it's easy to look at this you know, look at these issues in the abstract and not think about what is the impact on the places where these unicorns roam. Um, but it's one city, and they're all here, and it's incredible wealth and incredible pressure on the economy that is just going to get accelerated when these companies go public. I mean, I don't have the I don't have the data at my fingertips. I know from in respect of the classes that I've been teaching here on startups and venture capital, there's something like. Um, let's say roughly 200 unicorns in the world, over half are in the United States. And then, Owen, you're saying that a significant proportion of those are here based right here in San Francisco. Certainly, uh, especially with Uber, um, yeah. which is supposedly seeking a valuation on the public markets of $120 billion. 
uh, certainly the value of those unicorns is skewed towards San Francisco. The, so the biggest of the big are here. I wonder, can you talk about, I mean, before we get into the kind of the socioeconomic, the demographic impact of unicorns here in the city, I mean, do you have thoughts or insights on kind of valuations and are they sustainable and what are the viability of these exits? I mean, everyone's kind of, you know, everyone's reading tea leaves, especially in the face of such profound market volatility. Can these companies get to an IPO where their value will be respected? Uh, can they get to an M&A transaction where they're going to find a buyer who's willing to buy them for at least the price that was given to them by their last investors? Well, Doug, I think you have to start with economics. And the, the fundamental economic trend is, um, I think there, there's some uh, acronym for it, but I'm, I'm going to get that wrong. But it's something like the global pool of investable cash. And this pool of cash, generally excess savings from countries like, you know, like China and Japan, European countries where, you know, people are building up for retirement. This cash is sloshing around looking for returns. And some percentage of that cash finds its way into venture capital funds and private equity funds, mm -hmm. yep. which then in turn invest it in these startups. And remember, the, you know, whatever the value of the company is, the dollars into that company are much less. So it doesn't take that much money to kind of inflate a company into, into unicorn status. Um, the other thing is, you know, the price is what the market will bear. So when you hear about a company that is worth $20 billion, that means, you know, that could just mean that someone has paid, uh, if I do the math right, $200 million for 1% of the company. You know, yeah. it's, it's basically set by the share price that the investors agree on. So, you know, you can which debate. Isn't, which isn't always dependable. Right. I mean, a absolutely. You know, one thing is that is that those um, those investors are getting preferred shares, which have protections and privileges. And that private market valuation may not be the same as a public market valuation. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's a very real risk. We saw it with actually with Facebook and uh, with Square. When those companies went public, they struggled to match their most recent private market valuation. And we may see some of the unicorns struggle. But, I mean, you know, are these companies worth, you know, like, are these companies worth 60 to 70% of their private market valuation? Are they worth 200% of their private market valuation? You know. So, so what happens if, if, if um, you take a company like Palantir, mm -hmm. which is based in Palo Alto, and I'm just picking a name and I'm just, uh, I don't know the numbers. I think their most recent valuation was something like $20 billion. Mm -hmm. And as you say, that value is ascribed to them. I mean, in, in normal context, it's ascribed to them by their last private investment. So, you know, somebody decided that, hey, this company is worth $20 billion, and that's the price at which they're going to price their stock and so forth. What happens to a company like, I don't want to pick on Palantir, but it's convenient. You know, if they attempt to go out into the public market and the public isn't willing to recognize the same value that the private investors get to it. So maybe the public market says, hey, you know, 10, 10 billion tops, mm -hmm. but we're not going to give it the same valuation that these last round investors gave it. What happens? Does Palantir, 
I mean, how how do these companies respond to a situation like that? Well, I think it's I think it's tough. I mean, if you you know if you go all the way down the route of an IPO um, and you don't go through with it, it's very damaging. Damaging you know, to the company. To the company, you know, it, it for will, having tried and failed. Yes, absolutely. Now the new confidential filing process, which the SEC, I believe, last year extended actually to all companies. You don't have to be a certain smaller size mm -hmm. to take advantage of it. That lets you kind of tiptoe to the edge and pull back, and no one will ever know outside the company that you tried to go public. So there's a little less risk now in kind of testing the waters. I think you know, for a company like Palantir. I'd say the problem is that they're not a brand, um, except maybe to you know maybe to Tolkien fans who watched Lord of the Rings. Um, but you know they they mostly serve governmental customers. They're an enterprise play, um, and most consumers don't know what they do. So they're going to judge a company like Palantir on the financials. A company like Uber, Airbnb. People know those companies. They kind of have an idea in their head of of how they make money. And so they're going to be less worried about the financials and more about kind of the sentiment, the vibe, the hype. Um, I just think this is a reality of, so of how companies go public. Well, let me just walk this through. So now let's let's take it. So we're not we're not picking on any one company. Let's say or let's say I know that Uber and Lyft both did these confidential filings within a day of each other right. for an IPO. And the premise here is that, you know, each company prior to an IPO has to walk through the disclosure in its prospectus, in its draft prospectus with the SEC. And the SEC, there's some back and forth about whether or not that disclosure is adequate. And if there are any speed bumps or wrinkles in that disclosure, the company has a chance to fix those if they can't be fixed in a satisfactory way then no one knows the better. In effect, they pulled the IPO off the shelf and nobody even knows. This goes to mm -hmm. your point, Owen, about being damaged. So now let's pick a company like, uh, I don't know, like Lyft. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, and they did this confidential filing. And let's say the SEC says comes back and says, hey, God, we think you need to disclose 20% more information and there's a disagreement over whether that's appropriate or necessary. And, and Lyft says, ah, we're not going to do an IPO. So now they go back and think, okay, they have two other options. One is to find a buyer, mm -hmm. or the other option is to do nothing, just to continue as a private company, manage their cash, and hope that maybe the markets change, business model changes or improve or whatever. I mean, so how, how I guess the question to you, Owen, is what have you seen as you look at these unicorns struggling to kind of find a way to provide uh, liquidity for their stock, how do they deal with it? Where one channel shuts down, what do they do then? Well, I think we should spend a moment on Lyft because they actually—they're uh, a fascinating example. Okay, um, they actually jumped out of the airplane and threw away their parachute. They publicly <laughs> announced yeah. that they had confidentially filed for an IPO. So they—they they gave it, away. That's unusual. It's unusual, but there's a reason. Lyft and Uber are in this incredible race. I mean, obviously they compete directly. Obviously Uber is bigger than Lyft. Lyft wanted to get out ahead of Uber because if they go public first, then they set their own valuation and they kind of limit Uber to be a multiple of Lyft. Oh yeah. Uber went out first 
and they still might, depending on how fast they run these processes. Um, then Lyft is just a smaller version of Uber. They exist in the shadow of Uber. Yeah. yeah. Now, because they filed so closely to each other in time, they're probably going to come out around the same time, and they're probably going to set each other's valuation. But it's it's an incredible horse race. So from your from your perch, where you sit as the editor of the, of the San Francisco Chronicle, the business editor, mm -hmm. is this a, is this the kind of story that you would be following? Oh, absolutely. These were front these were front page stories two days in a row. So how do you get access to information about this? Do you have? I mean, does part of your staff go out there and start knocking on doors? And... Well, I, you know, in, in Lyft's case, they just put it out there, and of course, we we and everyone right else. Up. Rush to rush to get it. Um, in you know, in the case of Uber, uh, I think it was actually you know credit where credits due. It was the Wall Street Journal that broke that story. Um, but you know, the information gets out. I, you know, we definitely have reporters who are, uh, you know, who are knocking on doors and trying to get as much information as we can. The um, the stories that we really excel on though are the ones that have some intersection of, um, you know, Market Street and Wall Street that have some local angle you know when airbnb for example was fighting with san francisco over their right to oh, right you know over you know basically how short-term rentals would be regulated uh we were absolutely on top of that story one because i've got a great reporter in carolyn saeed who's been covering airbnb for years and two because we just do better at those Stories that have a you know a city hall and a Silicon Valley, angle. a local flavor to it. Yeah. So how does a reporter like I'm sorry, what was her name? A Carolyn Said. I mean, does she, she just knows kind of which which sources are the ones that are best to yield the information, the interesting information about uh, that? You know, absolutely. And you know, I think you also get to a point where the sources are calling you to figure out what's going on. <laughs> and you know, you get a you, pretty soon that I mean, she's in the middle. She, be, yeah. she becomes a disseminator of the information. That's yeah. yeah, that's the ideal position to be in. Yeah. Uh, when you when you get a story, um, but you know, I think the you know, I think the stories that we're really going to you know uh, excel on are. Um, are, are, are the aftermath of the IPO after, you know, after everyone gets their payday, uh, what happens to the housing market? Oh, um, yeah. You know, because all that information from the public offering really doesn't become public until after the prospectus is out on the street. You can see financial statements. You have a stock price floating around. So, you know, in effect, how the company is being priced, what its valuation is. I mean, all these things come to light yeah. only after the IPO is priced. Absolutely. But, you know, I think the, the other thing is that for, you know, for a Wall Street Journal or a Market Watch or, you know, other, other financial publications, these companies are all numbers. For us, they are thousands of human beings who work at those companies who um, are going to have their financial fortunes change. They are our you know, or they are our neighbors on the streets of San Francisco and um, looking at how they're going to benefit, how that's going to accentuate the divide between haves and have nots. Uh, you know, I think I really think that's going to be the Chronicle story. So we were talking about, you know, this phenomenon in San Francisco, Owen, called unicorns. These are companies with valuations of over one billion dollars. And that kind of shades naturally into a discussion what I've called hypergrowth, which is you have San Francisco, the Bay Area, as a white-hot economic center driven by, you know, mezzanine-level venture-backed companies 
in both tech and biotech. I mean, that covers a lot of waterfront. And really, the discussion point that I wanted to begin with Owen is to talk about, you know, both the negative and the positive associated with what I call hypergrowth, this, this, this white-hot economic center in the city. So maybe you can start with kind of your thoughts on that, and then we can, we can pursue specific threads as we go. Absolutely, Doug. Uh, one example I'd like to point out is Salesforce. So yeah, good I, one. I was, you know, I was chatting with uh, executives over there, and uh, you know, I said, "Hey, do you guys know you're the largest private company in uh, by employees in San Francisco?" And they said, "Well, we're the largest tech employer." They're like, "No, you're the largest employer. You just overtook Wells Fargo because they bought a, you know, they bought a 500 person software software company, MuleSoft." Yeah. Oh, and that. Put them, put them over the edge. successful, yeah. yeah. Um, and they were like, you know, gosh, we, we, we kind of lost track. And that's... Um, when was it, that conversation you had with Salesforce? That was, uh, that was just earlier this year. I think, you know, maybe in the April or May yeah. time frame. Wow. Um, and obviously, they're, you know, they're now the most visible company in San Francisco. Their, their Salesforce tower dominates the skyline, and they're actually putting up more towers Around, I think I heard that yeah. around the uh, transit center, which yeah. is called uh, the Salesforce Transit Center. On top of it is Salesforce yeah. Park. Um, you know how how did they just take over the city like this? It was not very long ago. Um, if you um, go back to the beginning of uh, the late Mayor Lee's term, you know they were just a mid-sized, you know, uh, employer, probably one of the bigger, if not the biggest, tech companies. Um, but their revenues have just been on a consistent growth tear because they've been on this cloud software trend and, you know, and they keep adding people and suddenly before you know it, they are bigger than Wells Fargo in, you know, Wells Fargo's own hometown. Um, so I think the growth happens on a different scale. Like the, you know, someone overtopping, uh, you know, a bank in, you know, in like, in the 80s, it was Wells Fargo versus Bank of America. You know, Wells Fargo would be worried about another bank. Boy, it's uh, changed. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, but I think that's, that's the thing about our modern era is that the pace of change kind of overtakes our human ability to kind of even grasp it. To adapt to it. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. You know, we have to understand it to even know how to react to it. And it's kind of, it doesn't happen on a time frame that we're kind of biologically, neurologically used to. So, and that's, that's a, a topically, oh, and that's something that the Chronicle would go after and pick up, which is, you know, maybe something as, you know, you're talking about hypergrowth and product innovation and product life cycles and so forth. But the premise is that the velocity of change becomes so fast that people just can't absorb it anymore. Yeah. Is that absolutely. something that you guys have, have thought about and written on? Um, I think it's, you know, I think it's a theme that informs uh, a mm -hmm. lot of our writing. I, you know, we tend to report the day's news. So, you know, do we always step back and kind of say, uh, this is what big picture is going on? Um, you know, we, we try to. Uh, when, when Mayor Lee died, actually, a, a piece that uh, I was really proud of us doing was something that just looked at all of the kind of financial uh, health statistics of the city in, um, you know, from... 2012 to 2017 and it's staggering doug how much unemployment dropped how much um you know like uh, you know office rents rose 
so good and bad. Yeah, no, I mean, like, in, in 2011, 2012, we were worried about the lingering unemployment from, you know, the after effects of the, I remember of, of that. the Great yeah. Recession. Yeah. Um, and that was, you know, that was the problem people were worrying about, not housing. Now, should we have kept our eye on the housing ball? Absolutely. Um, and are we paying the price now? Absolutely. But I think what that shows is we couldn't conceive of a turnaround so rapid from, you know, you know, from double digit unemployment to, you know, for all in, in, all intents and purposes, full employment. Um, in, and, and astounding salaries that that engineers yeah. in the city are earning. I mean, it, yeah, you're talking about positives associated with this hyper growth. Right. But, you know, even those, uh, you know, engineers making those fancy salaries, if they want to, you know, if they're entering the rental market right now, they're giving away half of it to, you know, or more to landlords. Rent a studio or apartment. Yeah. yeah. The, I mean, the most hilarious thing I've heard, Doug, is that there's there's now a startup that is buying, uh, you know, these like large luxury apartments and figuring out how to break them up to squeeze in more people who are going to split it, you know, like three or four ways. Like <laughs> micro you know, apartments. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, not sure, not sure how you know legal or uh, permitted that is. So but. let me let me ask you a question. <laughs> when you've got a company that's thriving, mm -hmm. as the tech and biotech sector in San Francisco is, um, how do you guys decide on what to write, write about? I mean, what do you have? A, is there a business philosophy we really want to focus? I mean, I'm just throwing out an idea. Yeah. Hey, we just want to focus on the on the positive side of business growth in, in San Francisco. So that we generate revenues, advertisers come in, uh, the paper gets a bigger footprint if we stay focused on positive. Talk to me a little bit, Owen, about the editorial yeah. we don't perspective really, that you bring to the table. Yeah, we don't really think of it as like we need to put out positive news because that's, you know. It's, it's not what newspapers do? You, you know, well, you know, positive, negative, that's not really our our job to like judge. We we report, you know, we report what we, you know, in our in our best objective professional opinion is news. Um, but certainly when I think about prioritizing news, I go with who are the largest employers, who are the most valuable companies, largest employers, because their employees are our readers. Um, you know, yeah, they're consumers you, of your product. Uh, exactly. You know, how many people are kind of intimately tied up with the fate of, you know, a company like, you know, like Salesforce, Gap, Wells Fargo, all large employers in San Francisco. That definitely has to be a, a factor in just how many people does this news matter to? Um, then, you know, then there are companies like PG&E. Now, everyone, practically, practically speaking, is a PG&E bill payer. They're a PG&E customer, whether they want to be or not. There's not much choice in the matter. Um, and they've had enormous, um, you know, horrible uh, life and death impact on yeah. people from everywhere from San Bruno to, you know, San Bruno to Paradise. Um, so, you know, that company obviously is like a super high priority to cover because they mean a lot to readers. So, so just before we shift gears, I wonder if you can talk about um, what I hear about the most in terms of the negatives of this uh, high class problem, which are housing costs, both rental and purchase and traffic in the in the bay area i mean are, are those topics that catch the the, the editorial eye oh absolutely paper? you know like as much as we write about salesforce when their annual dreamforce conference rolls around I, I find one of the top uh questions from readers are okay 
what streets are going to be closed <laughs> as a result of this yeah. big, you know, big, big conference. Um, Everything gridlocks in the yeah, city. Yeah. No, I mean, the, the funny thing is that the, the metric for, um, for economic, you know, activity in the Bay Area used to be traffic on 280. Could you whiz down 280 in the morning uh, going from your house in, in, uh, in San Francisco to your job in, you know, Mountain View or Cupertino? Um, now... You know, no one. You know, no one's driving themselves on 280. They're all on. You know, they're all on the Google bus or name your employer bus. Yeah. Or should you know, <laughs> should the metric be how long it takes to you know to for your Uber to go from Hayes Valley to Mission Bay inside San Francisco? Increasingly, a lot of the economic activity is, you know, within San Francisco rather than san francisco being a bedroom community for silicon valley it's become the center of gravity yeah, yeah absolutely and you know and traffic uh you know there have been various traffic studies i think a lot of people want to pin it all on on uh ride hailing on uber and lyft and there is probably some incremental incremental traffic that's happened but a lot of it is just the economy more know. people more jobs more people more jobs more congestion it, yeah and we're not you know as mark benioff once told me we're not building more san francisco <laughs> it's it's 49 square miles like that's it we're, we're not going to do what what uh, hong kong did and uh you know and fill up the uh fill up the bay yeah for people just joining us uh you're listening to business radio on sirius xm channel 132 i'm speaking with owen thomas the business editor of the san francisco chronicle so so let's oh and let's let's shift gears and talk about a subset of hypergrowth, which is homelessness. I know this has been a huge issue here in the Bay Area, and I know the paper has covered it. Maybe you can talk about it. Absolutely. One of you know one of the interesting things is we found in you know our um, our studies and surveys that have been done of the homeless population in San Francisco is um, that it's been fairly steady, uh, which is not which is maybe counter to people's perception that. Uh, the problem is getting worse and worse. But what happens is it's steady, but it's not the same population. People cycle into and out of homelessness. Most people, uh, you know, most people don't stay homeless year round. Um, and so you might have seen some. It's a transitional it's thing. A, yeah. And you might have seen some very inflated statistics about how much San Francisco spends on each homeless individual. Well, you know, that spending, it's um, it's addressing keeping people housed. It is serving people who get, you know, who are temporarily homeless and get rehoused or they are, um, you know, they're on the edge, they're about to get evicted, you know, they get mm -hmm. rental assistance. There's a lot of spending that's keeping people in homes rather than letting them become homeless. There are um, kind of hardcore people who have, you know, are living on the street and um, are for various reasons, resistant to getting help. And those are a hard population to deal with. But San Francisco is actually way ahead of a lot of cities. We've created a system that actually logs these individuals so that, you know, they're, they're already known to the police and to caseworkers. You know, they see these people again and again. But we actually now have a way of logging who are they, uh, where do they, you know, where do they stay when they stay on the streets, what services have mm -hmm, been mm -hmm. offered, you know, what are the... What are the issues at play? Um, and our Department of Homelessness says that's making a difference. Um, so I wonder, when you guys report on this, do, do you see uh, the connection between, you know, iconic companies in San Francisco 
competition for talent, increasing salaries, uh, housing costs go up commensurate with the increase in salaries. And suddenly, you know, if I'm in a two bedroom apartment paying 800 bucks a month and suddenly the landlord says, well, it just went up to 5,000 a month. Suddenly I'm pushed from, you know, having a place to stay into homelessness. Yeah. Unless absolutely. I, unless I move to, well, that's, that, that's the thing is, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of people, rather than become homeless, they stay with a friend, stay with family members. They move out of the area. Then you have people coming here too. You know, there's, there's a constant ebb and flow of, mm-hmm. of people. So it's not, you know, it's, it's hard to draw the lines that directly, but absolutely the, you know, the, you know, the absolute lack of, of affordable housing is, you know, is a factor in some people becoming homeless, um, staying homeless longer than anyone wants them to. So maybe you can talk about Proposition C. I know this is, I don't live in San Francisco, so I don't really know the politics, but I'm certain you do. I mean, this, can you maybe explain it to us? Absolutely. So, um, a a brief amount of history, uh, back in 2012, um, the business community came together and said, we don't like the payroll tax that San Francisco charges because we see that as anti-job. And remember, we just talked about how 2012 unemployment was a big problem. Well, so the business community designed a fairly complicated replacement for the payroll tax that uh, taxed companies based on their gross receipts. And it was a formula based essentially on like uh, either how much business they do in San Francisco or how many employees they have in San Francisco versus the rest of the world or a mix of those factors. Mm-hmm. It's a very complicated tax. But again, the business community designed this. They they were instrumental in, you know, crafting that in piece crafting of, yeah, that yeah. exactly the way they wanted it to turn out. Well, Prop C said, OK, we think this gross receipts tax is good. We're just going to increase it on the high end. So if you make more than twenty five million dollars in gross receipts, which, again, I just want to stress, not the same as revenue, because San Francisco has its own very particular definition. And if you just Google, uh, not to toot my own horn, but if you Google San Francisco Chronicle Owen Thomas gross receipts, I've got an explainer of exactly how complicated this tax is. Okay, So Propsy hiked the tax on the city's biggest businesses with the rationale that they would be um, most able to afford it. So it wasn't a tax on small business. And the notion was that you take this, these additional tax revenues and apply them to the homeless? Direct them all to homelessness programs and not just programs serving people who are in the streets, but keeping people off the streets. And a lot of, a, a lot of programs as our columnist Heather Knight wrote that have a proven track record. And you could see how you put in, you know, just like you've got a venture venture backed company and you can see that the business model is working the unit economics work these were programs that had shall we say good unit economics you put in more money and more people get housed um so you know there was i I think there was a lot of so it's a merit associated with the notion of improving increasing the the homelessness fund because they were well-designed programs absolutely and um you know uh, Mark Benioff, the CEO, co-CEO of Salesforce, actually became a champion of this. Um, and it was through a conversation he had. Which with, is kind of counterintuitive, yeah. isn't it? Absolutely. You know, he, he told me himself, like, you know, I think people, uh, you know, he said uh, that business leaders have like a reflexive anti-tax reaction. Like, I don't want you to tax me. Um, but it was um, actually a conversation with one of the proponents of Prop C, a small business owner um, in, uh, I believe it was the, uh, the Haight-Ashbury district. 
um, who had a Twitter DM conversation, direct message with Benioff and persuaded him to, to kind of change that default stance. And, and sponsor or be a supporter of Proposition absolutely. C. So what happened? Uh, well, what happened is, you know, he was quietly supporting it. And, um, you know, then, you know, then he told us, the Chronicle, that he was going, you know, that he was doing this and kind of made a big deal out of it. And then Jack Dorsey, the CEO of not one but two San Francisco companies, Twitter and Square, um, tweeted at Benioff that he disagreed and that he thought Prop, Prop C was a bad idea. Now, I should be clear, Mayor London Breed opposed Prop C. God, this is a this it's, is a tortured it's a twisted story. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, and there were other there were other leaders who said, you know, basically the concern was A, you know, are we overtaxing businesses? And B, does it kind of lock us into spending money in a particular way? So, you know, some of the some of the arguments were just kind of generic anti taxation. Some of the arguments were more you know, technocratic, like, is this just the best way to solve the problem? Uh, Benioff's argument was more from the heart, just like, we've got to do something. And he, yeah. he, he also made a business case for it. He said, my number one worry right now is getting enough employees to kind of tackle all the opportunity I, I see. My limitation is not like my, you know, after-tax profit margins or any of that stuff. It's can I get the people I need? And are they going to be happy working for me in San Francisco? And he saw the biggest barrier there is the dire condition of our, you know, our, our, our fellow city. citizens yeah, yeah. on the street. Um, so, what's, so the proposition passed. It passed and with a 61% margin. And you would think normally 61%. That's great. Okay, it passed. No question. Clear support. But it turns out there are... Uh, ongoing cases over whether a tax needs a higher margin of victory to pass. So it may end up being that after all of this fighting, we collect the tax and we have to set it aside while there's a court fight over whether we can spend it. Oh my gosh. This is, I mean, I, I know that homelessness has been, been a, a pretty significant issue and it sounds like it's going to continue being a significant Absolutely. issue. Absolutely. But you know, the, the interesting thing is I think it's brought a lot of focus on it and mayor breed has now said, um, you know, unrelated we're getting kind of a windfall of um, of money from California, just you know more more money than the state anticipated being uh, to support the homeless. Uh, well, it's being sent to local jurisdictions to spend as they see fit. But Mayor Breed has said let's prioritize spending it on homeless problems because we don't know if the Prop C money is going to be tied up, um, and you know we need to do something now. We are out of time. I knew this hour was going to go by. Oh, and thanks again for coming Absolutely. on the show. It's been uh, it's been great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Hey, so, where can people? So we know t to find out you. Can you t for people to track you down? What again is the, the blog that you write? The oh yes, newsletter? It's, it's the Tech Chronicle newsletter. Actually, probably the best way to find it is on Twitter. You can just follow at Tech Chronicle, and we will tweet a link to it every. Uh, Every Wednesday every when Wednesday. we publish. And I am at Owen Thomas on Twitter. Great. So thanks, everybody, for joining us. If you've got a question about something you've heard on the show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. We air live every Monday at 4 p.m. Uh, Pacific. You've been listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132.
For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.